1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week's show is a bit of a bumper edition. Uh, We're still talking about Black Lives Matter. I think we'll always be talking about it. Um, But we have some really amazing guests on helping us learn and grow this week. First up is Leila Saad, author of White Supremacy and Me. She shares what her teaching about anti-racism can help us with, and just why it's so important that we all take the time to really understand our motivations. She's incredibly inspiring, and my interview with her really allowed me to understand the importance of the work she does, but also just the toll it takes on everyone to do this but particularly on black women and why it's so important for me as a white person and for any other white people listening to really engage with it. Plus, Shereen Daniels, director of HR Rewired, talks to us about how employers can support their black employees during this time. And Candice Brathwaite, author and Instagram star, talks about her new book, um, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, and what it's like to be a black British mother in the UK. And we meet Florence Given, uh, author of Women Don't Owe You Pretty, talking all about the young feminism and how she is challenging today's beauty standards. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. First up tonight, I talk to Leila Saad about her new book, Me and White Supremacy. I want to ask you first of all, for anyone who hasn't read the book, Me and White Supremacy,
3: why white supremacy? Why did you go with that word Yes. So I started doing this work as a way to help people who didn't necessarily see themselves as racist or didn't necessarily identify themselves as maybe having white privilege or having racist thoughts. Um, That's who I started this work for. And I felt that it was really, really important for us to name this system that we are all conditioned into and this paradigm and this consciousness that affects everyone. And so um, in naming it, me and white supremacy, as opposed to naming it, you know, me and implicit bias or Mm -hmm. me and uh, white privilege, I really wanted people to understand this is so much bigger than what you realize. And it's not just those other people who you believe are the real racists but all of us who have been conditioned into this system
2: one of the things that i found really interesting about it was the exactly that when you say it's we think of white supremacy as something that exists over there it's something that some bad people do but we're not like them so we're okay Uh, and i say we as in other kind of white people who go i like everyone therefore i'm definitely not a racist Um, And in fact, what you're saying in your book and what comes across really clearly when you work your way through it is that if you are a white person living in a white-dominated society, we have all benefited
3: from white supremacy, correct? Yes, that's correct. And actually, globally around the world, Mm -hmm. white people have privilege. Even if you're not in a white society, um, there really isn't any place on this planet where being white is not seen as being of higher value, um, but going back to your point about people believing that it's not us, it's them, that really comes from this fundamental misunderstanding that racism is about consciously chosen, you know, thoughts and beliefs of believing other races are superior and intentionally wanting to see other, people of other races um, suffer or be oppressed and, or be marginalized. And that simply isn't true. It really is about how the entire world is set up, which is this um, belief that white people are superior to people of other races, and then because of that, that they deserve to dominate over people of other races and that they're forgiven privileges and are able to move around in their lives and in the world in ways that black and brown people are not able to do so in the same way it's similar to i think people can understand it um when we think about male privilege that there's a way that men are able to move around in the world and there there is no place on this planet where men are not treated as if they are better and of higher value than women it's the same with having white privilege
2: What would you say to people who say, um, and I I know a lot of people and I am asking largely for my own benefit so I know what to say to them. What would you say to people who say, well, I know that I'm a good person and I know that I would never judge anybody by the colour of their skin and I'm just interested in the people. Um, Therefore, I don't really need to think about whether or not white supremacy applies to me because I know I'm a good person and I'm okay.
3: Yeah. So that part about being the good person is what often Mm -hmm. stops people from looking at their own unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs. Because if your understanding of racism is that racists are bad people, then if you believe you're a good person, you're not going to want to associate with anything to do with racism and therefore wouldn't read anything that's about anti racism because you already fundamentally believe I'm a good person, therefore I'm not a racist. But we have to separate. Your your sense of goodness from the fact that whether you have consciously chosen it or not, from the moment that you were born into this world, society has been reinforcing to you that white people are um, are superior to people of other colors. So if you think about mm-hmm. a child growing up, and I know, I mean... I know for myself, growing up in the eighties, you know, in Wales, and then later in the nineties in um, in England, you know, what was reinforced to me through television, through advertising, through the media, was that the people who are seen as represented as the norm are white, and if there is a black person or a brown person on the cover of a magazine, for example, or as the lead in a TV show, that that's an odd thing, that that's not normal, right? And so that reinforcement has nothing to do with that you're consciously choosing to be mean or not a good person. It's what's being reinforced to you all the time. So then if that's what's being reinforced and it's what's normal, then any racist thoughts that you have are also coded as normal, right? Mm. And especially if you believe racism looks like racial slurs, it looks like attacking people of color, like if those are, you know, that's what, that's what racism is, then you don't get to explore. What What about when you tone police a black or brown person and you tell them that the way that they're expressing themselves isn't the right way for them to express themselves? What about when um, you, um, for example, when you culturally appropriate from a, a black or brown culture, and you believe it's cultural sharing, but you're missing the context of the fact that between your culture and their culture that there's been a history of colonization there's been a history of harm right racial harm that that context is missing and so you can't understand why somebody's saying to you that's cultural appropriation that thing you're doing is actually cultural appropriation and so and when that mirror is held up to you that do you understand that xyz behavior that you're doing which you don't feel is racist is actually racist If you're holding on very, very strongly to, but I'm a good person, then you can't hear the feedback and you won't examine yourself. And so it's really important to separate, understand your goodness is not what's being questioned here. Your goodness is, is, this is not about feeling ashamed of yourself. It's not about feeling ashamed of the color of your skin. It's about opening you up to begin to interrogate. What have I been conditioned into that I hadn't even realized? One
2: of the things um, that I thought was really interesting in the book is that you recommend a list of resources. Um, oh, no, is it a list of resources? A, li- a list of questions to ask yourself about. You know, how do you see yourself in the world, and do you realise that the way you see the world actually is sort of ingrained racism? And one of those, one of those things is uh, the assumption that any time you ask to speak to the manager, the chances are the manager's
3: probably going to look like you. Right. And, and I was going to add, and if they don't look like you recognize, is there a moment of surprise that they don't yeah. look like you, that they're in a mm-hmm. position of leadership? What what is the first thought, the automatic thought, not the one that you correct it with because you recognize that's not a, that's a racist thought to have. But the yeah. immediate first thought that comes up, um, it's about that. It's about pulling that out and really shining a light, a light on that.
2: Um, there's something, the interesting thing about your book is it's not really a book that you read, it's a book that you do. Um, so you ask people, yeah. actually, there are exercises at the end of each chapter. Uh, you ask people to keep a journal as they go through it. Um, you say, very interesting at the beginning, that there are going to be times when actually maybe you want to put the book down or it gets a bit too much, or you're going to find it hard going, but please keep going. What made you decide to write the book?
3: So I had been talking about uh, white supremacy for about a year before doing um, what, what was the inception of this work, which was actually an Instagram challenge called Me and White Supremacy, using the hashtag Me and White Supremacy. And I had been, I'd noticed that, um, you know, if I tell white people this is, this is racist or this is an action that is racist, there's a lot of defensiveness there, um, Whereas the difference between let me pose some, let me explain things to you, and then pose some questions for you, and then get you to explore how this shows up for you, that that created a different kind of opportunity for white people and people with white privilege to really explore how racism shows up for them. And it allowed them to take responsibility for their own learning while taking the burden off of me. Um, And so I wanted to create a process and, you know, it was an Instagram challenge and now it's a book. Um. I wanted to create a process where white people and people with white privilege can actually take responsibility for their own learning. I wanted them to have um, a resource that they can actually do the work with, as opposed to reading and sort of intellectually taking in the information, but just it just staying there. Um, and, And when there is that sort of intellectual taking in of the information oftentimes there's still that exceptionalism that says, oh, that's other white people, but it's not me. And this is very much about your own individual personal um, exploration of how you have unconscious racist thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors. Because your, your own self, that's the only place where you have complete control. And, you know, racism and white supremacy operates at many different levels, including institutional and systemic, but it also operates on the personal level. And systems and institutions are created by human beings. And so I wanted to create a place where people could say, this is is the place where I can begin to take responsibility for anti-racism, for creating an anti-racist world, by looking at myself and how I am unknowingly contributing to the world that we currently have
2: what would you say to people who say um that it's all very well to try and change ourselves and to try and change our own behavior but until institutions actually change nothing is going to change that we actually need to change the institutions 100%. before we change ourselves
3: 100% and that's why i say at the sort of at the end of the book i talk about this dismantling work has to happen on multiple levels and Different people, depending on where they sit in terms of their privileges of identities, but also, you know, what they do in the world. Do they have power um, to, you know, are they in positions of leadership? Are they in positions to vote? Um, Each one of those things is important to tackle, the personal, the systemic and the institutional. Um, But it's my hope that in people doing the personal work, that they begin to connect to this understanding that it's not just about changing laws. It's not, it's not just, right, we just had the um, yeah. uh, toppling of the statue, right, in Bristol. It's not mm-hmm. just about toppling the statue if people's consciousness is still racist. The fact that that statue was able to stay up for all these years despite efforts Real efforts by people to canvas for it to be taken down and for names to be changed of schools, etc., yeah. that it had to take this time that we're in right now for people to say enough is enough means that even if the statue was removed, people's thinking hadn't changed. And so it's the same with laws and policies. Yes, we need to change the laws. We need to change the policies. But we also need to change the consciousness as well, because we have to create a culture of anti-racism uh, and not just laws that are anti-racist. If if it were just about changing the laws, when slavery was abolished, we would have an anti-racist world immediately. Yeah. But we don't. Yeah.
2: This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Later, before the break, we were talking about the kind of big institutions and how uh, we're starting to see some of the real pushback against our institutions and the way they behave, particularly in the toppling of the statue in Bristol and in the protests going on around the world at the moment. What do you think the legacy of these protests is going to be?
3: Well, I think no one can deny that we're in a really important time of history right now. Um, I, I have never seen anything like what we are seeing um, around the world. It should be, you know, emphasized as well, not just in the United States, but all over the world where, you know, black people and people who are showing up in allyship for black people are saying enough is enough. You know, tell the truth about how black people are treated differently in this society. We are not we are in 2020. This isn't good enough anymore um, and change must come and so I, I think it's hard to you know predict what will come of this moment but I will say that it is very important for people not to feel like okay this is great there's protests once the protests are over we can we can go back to a sense of normalcy um, because you know we, we made change No, we haven't made change. We're starting now to create change, and it's on everybody, but especially on people who have white privilege, to really be taking up the responsibility of, how can I make sure that um, these protests were not in vain? That when we showed up, um, we didn't just show up in the moment because of the energy of the moment, but we kept showing up afterwards, um, even when the cameras were not there. Even when, um, you know, the ex- the quote unquote excitement of the moment was no longer there. How can we make sure to keep, to keep going? Because this work is, is lifelong work. Um, one of the things that really drives me is this idea of becoming a good ancestor. It's what I put on the, you know, subtitle of my book. I uh, host a a podcast called Good Ancestor Podcast. I teach anti-racism classes through Good Ancestor Academy. Like, it's the through line of everything that I do, because it's this constant reminder to me that, you know, my life is not just my own. My life belongs to to my children and my children's children and all people who will come after I'm gone. And so I really encourage people to really think long term and not just even of your lifetime, but lifetimes to come, because we are the products and the beneficiaries right now of the ancestors who came before us, who said, no, you know, slavery is, um, is heinous and should be abolished. Women should have rights, right? all of these things have come about the world that we have now is because of the ancestors who came before us and said enough is enough and so we need to be those ancestors now in this lifetime.
2: I'm sorry I just had to pause there because what you said really struck me so deeply about that we are the ancestors of uh, the people who came before us and that those of us people who come after us will look to us and what we did and the way we behave now, the change we made. Uh, that feels really powerful. You talk about how the work you do is a form of healing. Why do you use that term?
3: It's, well, it's, certain, it's it's healing for me first and foremost. Um, and the thing about not having white privilege is that you are not conditioned to believe that you are the norm and that you are um superior or that you deserve to be centered or that your life should you know have a sense of ease and normalcy that people of color don't have you know we are conditioned into the complete opposite and Mm -hmm. what we carry with us is our own you know the stories of our own um upbringing and as well as you know the Things that have, I'm thinking of in particular of an, inter, uh, an Instagram live I saw the other day of um, David uh, Lowe, and he was talking about every black person has a ra- like a racial wound. There are mm-hmm. stories that we have and things that have happened to us that really reminded us, you know, you are a black person um, and this is what that means. And so in doing this work of build, helping to co-create with people around the world, Helping to co-create an anti-racist world. It's the it's the way that I affirm to myself that I matter. That I, as a Black Muslim woman, I matter. Mm-hmm. My children matter. My parents, my my husband, my siblings, and and their children, they matter. Um, and it's also about helping to create a world where everybody, people of all races, get to live in the Fullness of their humanity, which is not the world we have today. The world we have today says people who are black and brown, their humanity is worth less than people who are white. Um, and and and, but also, for people who are white and who have white privilege, they're also not living in the fullness of their humanity because to oppress and to marginalize and to um, yeah, to, to do that, to, mm-hmm. to, to be supreme over anyone else also takes away from your own humanity.
0: Absolutely. And that,
3: this is what I have found, right? This is what I have found with people who are doing um, me and white supremacy, but also, you know exploring all other kinds of books and resources and classes on anti-racism. Yes, it's hard. It's, It's really hard to have that mirror held up to you and for you to start questioning things that you thought were normal and realizing actually you've caused a lot of harm in your life. It's so, so hard. But in telling the truth and in unpicking all of those lies and getting to the truth, you actually get to feel more whole. So, this is about healing for all of us, for all of humanity. Um, when we say, you know, I, I know a lot of people hear the, hear the um, hashtag or the, you know, the phrase Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter, and they think, well, you know, our own lives matter. My life matters too. And it's like, yes, but your life matters already in the society we live in. We, all lives will matter when Black Lives Matter too. And so it's about right. creating right. that healing for, for all of us. Thank you for listening to Badass Women's
2: Hour. You can hear us every Saturday on talk radio from 7 p.m. for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate, and general setting the world to rights. Now let's get back to our guest.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: So obviously the Black Lives Matter protests have been going on across the world this week and what that's meant for a lot of black people here in the UK is they've started getting questions from their friends. They've had friends asking them very well-meaning questions quite often. What can I do to help? Uh, What should I be aware of? Have I offended you? How are you? Questions that have a lot of heart behind them but when you're getting them all the time can be quite draining and when you're getting them at work it's even worse. Uh, Here to talk about how we can help businesses and how businesses can help their black employees better, Shireen Daniels, Director of HR Rewired. Hi, Shireen.
1: Hi, how are you?
2: Good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, First of all, what impact are the current riots having on black people's working lives at the moment?
1: Just as you said in your intro, Do you know what? It's tough for them right now. Um, Mm -hmm. They're tired. They are dealing with their own kind of thoughts and feelings, right, about what's been going on in the state. But also they are reflecting on their position in society. You know, one of the things that I spoke out um, a couple of weeks ago is about what I call the corporate wall of silence. So it was businesses not really acknowledging that this was having an impact on black people here in the UK, particularly black employees. And I think as we've seen, you know, even just in the last couple of days, even today, the emotional and quite decisive reaction to Black Lives Matter and and the fact that we're just pushing for equality um, has meant that many employees are now feeling upset they're feeling um, exposed, particularly if they're the only black employee in their business. So that's quite common. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that. Um, and the fact that they ju- they have to show up every day and, you know, they're on the Zoom calls and, you know, as you said, with a lot of heart and, and meaning, a lot of businesses and, and are now wanting to talk about it and they're wanting to kind of get people on the same page to understand why it's important. But you have black employees that are struggling to talk about their experiences, are struggling to articulate what years of daily, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? So all the little things that have happened over the last, you know, most of their working lives, trying to explain that in a half an hour conversation or an hour conversation is really difficult, Mm. really difficult. So just as you said, it's it's well-meaning with a lot of heart, Um, You know, it's almost like, you know, help me understand because I want to do better. Um, But it's also for people to understand it's very difficult to articulate that in a really succinct way that will land with you. So you get it and go, right then, you know, I know what I need to do next.
2: And also, I think within that, there's an interesting thing around, and I... I really feel this, which is if you are a white person and what you're seeing is one of your black colleagues constantly having to answer all the questions mm. about... And, you know, some of them are well-meaning, but also some of them are just people who want to have a debate or Correct. who want, you know, a specific piece of information about this, that and the other. Mm. If you're a white woman or man, seeing that happen to one of your black colleagues, there's kind of a point where you, I feel... Tell me I tell me what you think about it, I feel you should be stepping in and saying... Hang on. Uh, can I take some of that burden from you, or can we, you know, have a bit of disagreement that we discuss it in this way and in this manner, rather than letting them deal with everything? Is that right, or am I? Yeah. Uh, I don't no, know. I'm no. stepping in unnecessarily.
1: You are not, and I wish more people would do what you've just suggested. <laughs> to be honest, because um, I do think there's a little bit of um, almost like it's a free for all, you know, because I think in 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 some people's need to understand, right? Because I liken it to a bit like the the windows have been blown out. So all of a sudden you can see what life is really like on the other side. And when the penny drops, you're so keen to, you know, fill up the bucket of knowledge and you want to understand and you want to do better and you want to help. Um, But because it's easy for you to go to your black employee or your black colleague or your black friends, you end yeah. up, because you're ready, you assume that they're ready. And because you're yeah. ready, you assume that they want to make you their priority by definition of answering all of the questions that you have. And I think that's the bit that people have to remember. And that's exactly why what we said is right. Because, you know, if you're um, non-black or if you're white and you see this, you know, the barrage of questions, because it's happening all the time, Harry. It's happening all the yeah. time. You know, I've been getting right. it. You know, lots of yep. people go, oh my God, I don't understand you. Can you help me? And I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, you go through it all and, yeah. And then after a while, you're just like, you know what? Like, I do videos every day now. So I'm just like, watch my video. <laughs> it's the it's, it's way to say it's like daily, daily. I'm just a calm, which is fine. But I do. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. If you've got to show up to work every day, albeit through remote working, yeah. it's so difficult. And, and some employees, they just feel like they can't say no. Because, yeah. And that's the thing that other people have to understand is, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because on one hand, if, you know, cause I've heard this, right, and people have said, well, you black people, you've been wanting to show, you know, and, and talk about why this is important and how you've been treated and whatever. And we yeah. give you the opportunity to do this and you don't want to talk, you know, yeah. so therefore, and, and I swear to you, I've heard this, I've heard this. yeah. And, you that know, and, surprise and, me. yeah. And, and people will say, you know, well black people don't make it easy for yourself because one minute you're wanting this and the next minute you you know we don't know whether we're coming or going and you and and that's the kind of thing that people don't always understand they don't understand mm. that there are those conversations happening as well as the one that they have because like anything we're just human right so we just think oh they're only having this conversation with us they're not they're not <laughs> cognizant of the fact it's been multiplied out as soon as you put the phone down there's somebody else that wants to and a colleague is messaging you going, mean, Did you see did you see the statue that got toppled? What do you think? It's outrageous, isn't it? You know? And yeah. sometimes, you know, you just don't want to be drawn into the conversation.
2: Yeah. And it's It really struck me said that it's about making the other person a priority, not yourself. Um, One thing that worries me is that a lot of companies are coming out and saying, you know, we know we haven't done very well at this in the past. We're going to be better in the future. Uh, We're working with our employees now to find out what they want and how we can support them better. And it feels a little bit like a lot of companies are basically turning their black employees into unpaid diversity and inclusion consultants.
1: Oh, oh, oh Harriet, let me tell you, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. That is happening. Left, right and centre. You know, I've had um, people message me in, basically because they just want my advice, right? And they've yeah. gone, OK, so the company, you know, right from they're asking their black employees to draft their press statement their position statements they want them to come up with you know what i call suspiciously the 10 point plan to be an anti-racist company um <laughs> i kid you not i kid you not <laughs> and you know when you just think to yourself guys come on yeah, yeah come on and you know and and again dare i say it, but i have been very honest enough but it's come from a taste of laziness yeah because in in 2020 like Google is free. So you can go and look for free information and find out and read the books and read the resources and go and watch the videos and all the rest of it. And I think if you're making it the responsibility of your black employees exclusively, what you're showing is you, you only care because you're forced to. And, yeah. But you, you care only to the point that you want to be seen to be doing something about it, but you don't care enough to be the one to do the work first. And I
2: also, really like I, I'm going to say also that there are lots of brilliant black diversity and inclusion consultants out there. So if you really care about this, you can spend some money with them.
1: Oh, my goodness, that's it. And I've had like, lots of people, because I've been very vocal about this, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving yeah. a level of real talk that's missing in the corporate world at the moment because yeah. everybody's kind of getting caught up behind PowerPoint slides and you know, yeah. shiny PDFs. Um, and I've had people wanting to have sound me out for half an hour, an hour on what they should do as a business. And do you know what, Harry? I've just said to them, look, I've got videos, you know, on YouTube. Don't yeah. have a look. Hey, Charlie Whitey, we don't have a look. And then if you need more formal help, that's fine. But I'm charging you because my days of freebies are gone. You know, one of the things that I talk about a lot, particularly for Black people, is there's always an expectation that we will do things for free because they're grateful for the opportunities. Yeah. You know, and listen, I bought into that. So I decided when I started speaking out, I was like, no more, I'm not doing this anymore. But there was still that mentality of, you know, just as you said before, because they're ready, they expect everybody else is ready. And also, they're so focused on making sure they're all right. They're not thinking about, they're not coming from a place of empathy. Do you know what I mean? They're thinking about what's fair. Mm.
2: Shreem, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, Café Nero. So the CEO of Café Nero sent an email to all staff in the company saying, I want you to know there's a company we want to support every single one of you. So if any of you experience any discrimination at any time, don't bother going to HR about it. You email me directly and I will sort it. What do you think of that?
1: Um... (laughs) <laughs> what do I think well that's one way of dealing with it <laughs> that's all I'm going
0: to say Harry oh, <laughs> true. True. I,
1: can't, I can't that's all I'm going to say that is a possible way of dealing with it that's all I'm going to say <laughs>
2: <laughs> if there was one thing that you think companies could be doing in the next few weeks to actively support their black employees what would you like to see them doing
1: you know what? What I would like to see them doing is push past their discomfort, and you know this whole thing about being worried about getting it right. Because now a lot of people are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, I don't want to offend anybody. Um, you know, push past that discomfort. Do a bit of work. You know, do a bit of reading. Go and you know, listen. Ignorance is 2020 is not an excuse. Google is free, my friend. So go and go and yeah. type in all the terms that you want ask all the questions that you want read there's lots of articles there are lots of people speaking up about this you know um if you must go and binge watch a whole lot of my videos because i give you an x level of, of, of real talk about this and and question question everything that you've done as a business before that's clearly not worked because you know we're feeling the way we're feeling and we are where we are yeah and then at least when you do reach out and have those conversations with your black employees and have consistent and continuous conversations, don't just do it one time and then tick it off your list and go, that's done. On to the next thing um, is just be prepared to listen, you know, and know that they might tell you things that's going to make you deeply uncomfortable. And also they might tell you things that you might have had a part and parcel in contributing to the way they feel. But you have to resist the urge to react. You know, and just listen and don't ask questions because you're trying to either get them to justify it because it's not clear in your mind. Or don't ask them questions because you're fast forwarding and thinking, OK, it's a business you've got to do X, Y and Z. Just be present. Let them voice their experiences. Let them know that it's safe. Let them know that they're not. there's, there's no... Um, repercussions have been speaking out because that is what's stopping a lot of people speaking out harry a lot of people because they're worried that when all this excitement dies down they will be remembered as the one who you know spilled the beans about all sorts of practices that have been going on in the business yeah
2: shireen thank you so much for joining us and giving us your Um, brilliant take on it. It was great to hear from you. Shireen Daniels, director of HR Rewired there, talking about how businesses can support uh, their black employees during this time but also beyond it. Above and beyond as she says when all the excitement dies down how can we make sure that we are still behaving in a manner that shows empathy and support not just to the people that look like us but to every single person in our employee. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Over the past couple of years, Florence Given's Instagram account, challenging beauty standards and getting us all to see ourselves differently, has taken Instagram by storm and it's resulted in her new book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, uh, all about seeing the world through a feminist lens and making it her mission to challenge oppressive attitudes towards women. Our kind of girl, she joins us now. Hi, Florence. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Tell us why that title, Why Women Don't Owe You Pretty?
4: Um, So it's inspired by the quote by Erin McKean. And the quote begins saying, you don't owe prettiness to anyone. And the quote ends, it's a very long quote, um, and the quote ends with saying, prettiness is not the rent you pay to exist in the world as a woman. And this kind of quote, um, it's quite a few years old. I saw it on some Tumblr blog, and it changed my life forever because it forced me to examine the kind of measures that women apply prettiness just to be treated better in society, and also how different women, depending on Uh, their intersections and their identities, um, depending on race, sexuality, uh, whether they're able-bodied, whether they're queer, whether they're straight. All of these things contribute to how much you are expected to perform prettiness. And when I talk about performing prettiness, I mean anything from wearing makeup, doing your hair, wearing a certain type of clothing, shaving your body hair, all of these kinds of things that women do um, just to um, be treated
2: with respect in the world. You said it changed your life. In what way?
4: Um, I think I looked at the stuff I was doing and I questioned whether I was doing it for me or whether I was doing it for the validation that I was desired, not just by men, but by society and people in general. And there's a quote in my book and it says, um, I've used it in my on, on my Instagram as well, and it says, how much of um, my femininity is genuine and how much of it is a product of patriarchy you know i always question how much of my femininity is who i genuinely am and how much of it is a product of growing up in a society that does encourage women to perform a certain way to feel valid
2: why is it that in 2020 because I'm, I'm a bit old now I'm nearly 40 and I've been looking at this stuff for a while and I think I learned it in my 20s I was like this is not this is not something I'm going to, I want to buy into I've got to think about how I step outside of it and I hoped that when I was doing that my legacy would be that the generation below me well the women of your age would be like oh look we don't have to do it and yet here we are in 2020 and absolutely no women still believe in it why is that
4: I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the, whole, the whole reason that we um, – let's take shaving body hair, for example. The whole reason that women shave our body hair is because of a capitalist seed of insecurity. You know, women didn't shave their body hair before the 1920s. Gillette wanted to make a load of money making razors and decided that they were going to put these ads out that encouraged women to shave their bodies. And of course, now we actually pay more for razors because they're pink and anything pink is has like a tax added onto it. So um, there's all of these kind of things. It's like, you know, we, we were never insecure about our body hair until we were told to be insecure about it, to make money for people who own large corporations. And I think it's um, I, I can't tell you why it's it's still the way it is. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely uh, time to start challenging these narratives and women like you said women have been doing this for ages but it's it's um it's important that we keep this conversation going because still it's clearly very pernicious and very insidious in the ways that um it's so normalized and we accept it as a given that we're supposed to do these rituals
2: also normalized and in a way that we're rewarded for it because you know one of the things i'm very aware of is and i said here i've spent years trying to challenge this idea that as a woman you have to show up looking a certain way in order to be acceptable and yet there are some times where I'm like do you know what it's just easier it's just easier if today I blow dry my hair and I put on a load of makeup and I get my eyelashes done people will be nicer to me I'll get further people will listen to me I'm gonna have an easy I'll get a seat on the bus it'll be an easier day Absolutely.
4: It is a form of survival for a lot of women. You, you, you either you have two choices when you wake up in the morning and you, and you go out into the world. You say, OK, do I show up as my authentic self? Do I show up in a way that I feel comfortable, you know, just going out wearing whatever, not doing whatever to my face or my hair? And, um, you know, the benefit of that is that you don't compromise yourself, but you'll probably be met with unsolicited remarks, um, not the treatment you want and deserve. And you, you'll feel that. That you make you 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 have you have the benefit of being yourself, but also you know that you're not going to be treated as nicely. Or you say, well, instead I could just use the tools around me and pay with prettiness to avoid those unsolicited remarks. You you either way, yeah. it comes at a cost. So you're either it's at the cost of your authentic self, or it's at the cost of literally the cost of buying mm-hmm. things to make yourself look pretty, and the time and energy that goes into that.
2: Do you think it's easier if, and you know, I've seen your Instagram, I follow you, I think you're absolutely great, but you are a conventionally very attractive young woman. Yeah. Do you think it's easier if, you know, is it easier to stand there and say, oh, actually, you know, I'm not going to shave my legs, I'm not going to put on
1: makeup, I'm not going to, if
2: you still look pretty great anyway? yeah absolutely
4: i um again this is where there's so much nuance in my book i cover all of this um me being able to grow out my body hair is in fact a privilege even though society at large is still repulsed by it the fact that i can shave my body hair off and still be considered desirable by a large portion of people is very much a privilege and although i do experience um you know when i don't perform prettiness and when i do go outside not performing the extra layers of femininity, even just by virtue of me being white, people treat me better. And that contributes towards um, pretty privilege as well. And even though prettiness is subjective, we do need to acknowledge that society as a whole, our idea of pretty is informed by racial, fatphobic, transphobic and um, yeah, racial bias.
2: How do you think social media plays into this? Because it's, it's interesting to me that you have kind of come through on a platform which both on the one hand massively validates us for showing up and looking a certain way and behaving a yeah. certain way and putting a certain filter on it. And also at the same time seems to be the home of the kind of revolution against that.
4: Right. Yeah, I think it's it's acknowledging that in an ideal world, again, it's what I said, when you go out into the world, you, you, you mm. make a choice. You say, OK, I can keep my feminist morals or I can acknowledge the system that I'm in and conform um, to a certain degree to if that makes me um, able to get my message across. And the thing is, with my work, it's very bright, it's very colourful and it's very provocative. And my work has to be that way to capture people's attention and then to um, draw them into these very uncomfortable topics. And I think that's what um, I do with my social media. I didn't post a picture of myself for at least a year and a half when I started my Instagram account. It was just all of my illustrations. Um, And then when I started to gain the confidence to articulate myself and talk more about these issues and more about my experiences, um, that's when it resonated with people a lot more because all of a sudden there was a face to it and people were like listening and engaging with me. And I think there's, like you said at the beginning, it's like, how do we navigate these platforms? And I think it's about making it work for you. It's about having boundaries with these platforms. How much content do you consume? Who do you follow? Do they make you feel like crap about yourself or do they question um do they make you question yourself in, in a healthy way do they challenge your perceptions and your ideas and I think um for women in particular we are encouraged to not, um we are encouraged to put everybody first and I think Doing so to have people on social media who are encouraging an alternative narrative to just see that there is another way that you're able to thrive, I think that's great. And especially as social media now is basically the new media full stop for a lot of young people. Um, I think it's important that people are using these platforms to infiltrate with all of these very incredible political ideas. Uh,
2: Florence, if a young woman is listening to this and thinking, well, I hear what you're saying and I buy into it and I I feel that way too. I feel like I'm paying a price to show up and be accepted and I'd much rather just be able to turn up as myself, but I don't know if I can. What advice would you give her?
4: I'd say that that's, that's okay. Like if you don't feel that... Um you are able to show up as your authentic self because you know that when you apply these, this is this is the thing, right? It's about choice, but it's about knowing about your choice. It's about the awareness behind your choices. So when you do these things, it's it's about being aware that you're doing it because you know that it's an easier route. And I think it's ridiculous that we judge women who pay for these procedures, sometimes, you know, aesthetic procedures, to fit into the mold when, when they, we know that they're going to be treated better when they do so. So I absolutely do not judge women who quote unquote conform. Um, it's a survival thing. And also, I think the roundabout answer to all of this is that it doesn't matter if it's in line with your desires. You know, every time I do something, I ask myself, is this, is this in line with my desires? Or by doing this, am I going to be denying myself? And if it means that I'm denying myself, am I doing it? for a reason because it's for my safety a lot of the things we do as women are harm reduction right when we leave the house we do certain things with our appearance for harm reduction we deny our reality or or we say certain things to people or we lie to to protect our safety we deny our reality
2: for harm reduction and that's okay florence thank you so much for joining us and talking to us here on badest out it's been great having you Uh, That was Florence Given talking about her new book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, uh, why we don't have to slap on the slap just in order to be accepted. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, this week saw the uh, launch of a new book that has gone straight to the top of the bestsellers list, partly because of the relevance of what she has to say right now, but also because of the brilliance of the way she says it. So, I'm very lucky to be joined by Candice Braithwaite, author of I Am Not Your Baby Mother. Hi, Candice.
5: Hi, Harriet. Hello.
2: <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure you're having a full-on week. Um <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail about you and then you can definitely add to it. But you are part of, in a way, the Instagram mother generation, which is mothers basically highlighting their lives and talking about their lives on Instagram. And yet you have taken a really... I feel like full on approach to it, which is basically like, hang on, I've looked at this and it's filled with middle class white women whose lives all look the same, behaving in the same way, saying the same things, doing the same things. Where are the black mothers on Instagram? I am going to stand up and bring them together and represent them and highlight other brilliant women doing the same. Is that a fair assessment?
5: Very fair, very fair. Yay. I'm almost borderline anti-establishment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so take us back. When you first decided that this is what you were going to do, what provoked it in you? What was the moment where you said, actually, hang on, I th- I think we need something different here?
5: Um, at the time, this was almost seven years ago, I was working yeah, for a publishing house. And this is when blogging was big. And I was spending my entire day reaching out to bloggers to see how much they were charged to promote a book. And the, the money they were, were, were telling me, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is an actual business. And I feel like <laughs> there's a gap in the market I could be filling here, especially in the parenting space. And so much to my other half. Um, dismay. I quit my job and I just went all in on becoming obsessed with content creation and really pushing the black motherhood and nuclear family narrative and almost a decade down the line now we're here. So that was that.
2: Specifically for you, what have been some of the, I guess, some of the key highlights of doing this and also some of the struggles or some of the misconceptions that you've really had to correct or that you find social media throwing up again and again?
5: Uh, The key highlights is definitely being able to call myself a businesswoman and to be able to work Mm. from home and see my children and build a business and a brand that i'm proud of definitely one of the negatives is online trolling um i'm not new to that that's really terrible and can have a detrimental effect on mental health but then again on the flip side i've made some very firm and forever friends in this space also and so especially running the initiative make motherhood diverse I think I've really done well at bringing different types of women and people together. And so I just lean into the positive all the time.
2: One of the things that um, I personally learned from you was when you started talking about the fact that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Mm. And the experience of childbirth for black women and how different it is. And I know that for you particularly, it was quite traumatic
5: Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, Emergency C-section after 19 hours of induced labor, three days of telling various midwives I didn't feel well, fell asleep with my baby girl on my chest. She moves down and her baby weight uh, makes a septic sac beneath my C-section wound explode. Thank God it exploded, but I was rushed back to hospital slipping into septic shock and then I was in intensive care for five weeks. So really not the best start to motherhood at all. But back then, seven years ago, I thought I was one of one because I didn't have many, many mummy friends. Um, Mm -hmm. As the years have gone on, I'm speaking to more black mothers and, and traumatic birth experiences are usually what happens. It's actually very rare, in my opinion, to listen to a black woman's birth story and for it to just be blissful, simple and straightforward. And so when the Embrace report came out in 2018, it was like finally having data to support what we already knew. Black women are not listened to in childbirth. They're not listened to in the healthcare system. Um, People do not believe the amount of pain we're in. And this doesn't just go for childbirth, rates of um, black women being later to be diagnosed with cancer, the data surrounding BAME patients and COVID. Like is a pattern here and so being able to, like, um, campaign for this is something really close to my heart.
2: Your new book, um, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, what inspired you to write it? And what are some of the key key things people can learn from it?
5: Nothing inspired me to write it. I didn't want to write it at all, to be honest, Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> I had, there were six other proposals that had gone out before this book. <laughs> And for various reasons, everyone turned me down (laughs) and then... You know, my management team were like, oh, everyone wants to hear about motherhood. And I was a bit offended by that, because what I could mm-hmm. see from motherhood material at the time is it seemed to be very, how many gins can you drink before bath time? And I just thought, well, <laughs> this isn't long lasting material, is it? But I was so enraged. I wrote this proposal in 45 minutes, sent it to my management <laughs> team and my husband and said, I never want to speak to you guys again about it. Leave me alone. But then we had a book deal within a week. So now I do. always the way. Um, but I will say it is definitely the book I had to write and its purpose was just to offer up a different narrative a bit like why I I went online in the first place can you believe it's the first book backed by a major house in the UK about black British motherhood in 2020 that has absolutely blown my mind and I just wanted the book to shed some light on the not just the difficulties, but the nuance of being a black British mother. I think, you know, from the review so far, I, I think mm-hmm. I've done my job, to be fair.
2: What is it like being a black British mother right now, in this moment in time?
5: <sighs> it's a bit nerve-wracking, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, especially being the mother to a black son. Yeah. It, having a son is the reason why I decided to move out of London, I yep. keep a very close eye, almost a scientific eye on knife crime rates. I'm watching it go up and up year upon year. And there are things like he's only two and he's very boisterous. And I already worry about him going to school and that four or five years old, him being written off as a nuisance just because he moves like he's got ants in his pants. So, as a Black British mother right now, it's 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 how it's always been. You, your heart is always in your mouth. You're worried about them being judged. You're worried about um, the police being aggressive with stop and search. You're worried about knife crime and gang culture and people making you know having stereotypes about your children before they get to prove themselves. I would say that's been even heightened in the last few weeks due to the universal protest. In in yeah. in 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 response to George Floyd's murder, and so it's really up the ante on 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 the feeling of 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 fear that comes with Black British motherhood for sure.
2: Do you think that the universal Black Lives Matter protests taking place at the moment, that the the kind of feeling this is engendering throughout the world? Do you think it's gonna change things for black children as they grow up into the next generation?
5: Um, not the next generation, no. Although I will say Gen Z are super duper activated and they will yeah. they they're really willing to put up a fight. But it won't it's not for my kids, it's not for my kids' kids. I think it's for my kids' kids' kids. So we're talking three, four yeah. generations down the line. These things, you know, Michelle Obama said it on her tour, progress isn't linear. There will be yeah. dips that remind us of how far we've come and how far we have to go. And right now, I think, you know, we're on a bit of a nut, but there will be more dips along the way. And even the work I do, I do think sometimes I put my head in my hands and I think, why are you doing this, Candice? Mm. This is very exhausting work, but I'm doing it perhaps for the grandkids I will never meet. A bit like how, in the you know, when my dad was growing up, he said he always wanted to be a writer, but as a black boy growing up in the 70s, he didn't see how he could do it. And now his daughter, even though he's not around as a Sunday Times bestseller, the needle always moves. And so the change won't be magnificent, but I think it will happen in due course.
2: It's really interesting. So we had uh, Layla Sad on the show earlier, and she said, you know, part of her work is she does because she wants to be a good ancestor. Yeah. So she wants the generations that come after her to look back at her and say yes she did things which changed things for us
5: yeah feel some um, of
2: that
5: yeah definitely um layla is literally my sister and label mate and i tell her all the time or we tell each other all the time it's not for us this work is not for us and it is mm-hmm. to be referenced it is to say oh well that can be Sprathwake from a 100 years ago helped move this story along um yeah. you know and and we are we women like myself and layla we are the product of of the people who came before us and, and tried to push things forward so you mm-hmm. just have to stay committed you know i mean even looking at the book charts this week something's happening something all yeah. of a sudden this need this rush to just drink in black voices um i hope it i hope it's not just a trend i hope it can, mm-hmm. it continues for a while
2: you talked about how social media can be a, a rough place and it, re- you know, it really can for everyone, but I think particularly we all know for black women. How do you look after yourself within that?
5: I am very, very strict about my boundaries. And I used to be, and I don't, this isn't just about race, this is about being a female. A, a profile would follow me and I'd feel a bit funny, but then my female mind would go, oh gosh, but they haven't insulted me yet. It will be really rude if I block them. And then two weeks down the line, so-so-so it will turn out that that profile was a troll. So now, Mm. the minute a profile pops up and I don't even like the profile picture, you are out of here. My social media space is not a democracy. It's not where everyone gets to pile in and tell me what they want and I try and figure it out for them. And especially because black women are the most trolled and abused online, I am really, really strict about my boundaries. If I don't like something, I think my block list now is at about 7,000 people. My fingers hurt from blocking people. Um, I set keywords, I've turned off the auto responses in my direct messages. There are just small things I do to manage my mental health but even me, someone who has a, a big platform, I do believe these tips should be for every woman online because you shouldn't show up in your online space and think that you have to take abuse. You shouldn't.
2: One of the things I love about your uh, online presence is that you really stand for you're an activist who doesn't just want to talk about being an activist you I think it's today you said it's about being an activist and also the softness being able to talk about the softness so being able to talk about I've just bought this really amazing dress or I really love this lipstick shade or you know being able to balance both of them and actually show us show all women as rounded people Yeah, my
5: activism is always going to come with a side of couture. And I don't really care (laughs) who that annoys because these are the things that make me feel good. And I'm very deserving of feeling good and the nicer things in life. And and again, I have to set an example, especially for black women who who are always made to feel like they should shrink themselves and not ask for a lot. No, it's okay to say that the world is slightly unfair, but you still really like a designer dress. It's absolutely fine to say that. And I think, um, you know, I think about the way my mum dressed when I was growing up and my nan dressed when... Like, they didn't play small in that area. And so I like people to come to my social media and in between educated, just see that I'm trying to get as much joy out of life as possible. Um, and so I, I hope that's how it comes
1: across anyway.
2: Oh, it definitely does. Um, finally, what what advice would you give to other black mothers around the uk at the moment who are maybe struggling with how they talk to their kids about what's going on or as you say one worrying about kind of their welfare and how they're going to grow up in this world what would you want them to know
5: what would i want them to know my kids are still fairly young so i don't want to get ahead of myself but i do think it is about making room for um what white people would perhaps say are uncomfortable conversations, but in the black community yeah. are needed conversations, they're necessary conversations. I would say don't delay on that. Take a soft approach. Make sure your child can see themselves, be it in books or in certain shows you've chosen to watch because you cannot be what you cannot see. And I would also say um, black British mothers to just take take, take a load off yourself It's a high pressurised environment and and what you're doing now is good enough. You know, as long as you love your child and you are honest about how the reality is that them being black is going to mean their life is a bit more of a struggle, then you're doing the best you can.
2: You are definitely doing the best you can and thank you for sharing it with us uh, both online and in your book. Um, Candice, is always a joy to talk to you. You are just wisdom personified, so thank you very much for sharing it. Candace Brathwaite there, author of I Am Not Your Baby Mother, which is out now. Uh, if you're one of the few people that hasn't bought a copy, go get it, it's great. Um, Candace just can hear, it. it's so funny and rich and warm, just a lot of, yeah, a lot of learning in her book. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass guests and in-depth chat.
4: Planning for your next trip?